Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will safeguard you. Today is the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and using the accommodated sense of Scripture, the Church refers that verse from Proverbs to the Mother of God. Saint Idelfonsus, Idelfonsus is a theologian of the 7th century in Spain. He commented on that verse. He said, Go to Mary and sing her praises, and you will be enlightened. For it is through her that the true light shines on the sea of this life. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Later on in the program, we're going to take a look at the gospel for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. So that's the gospel for the traditional calendar. Also, we're going to return to our part two of our examination of the Novus Ordo Mass in light of Redemptionis Sacramentum, which is the the Magna Carta for uh, correcting liturgical abuse in the New Mass. But first, I want to look at some of the customs and traditions for today's feast, the Feast of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And starting with uh, before she was born, you know, uh, in the ancient world, children were considered such a blessing that if, if a man was sterile or his wife was barren, um, that was popularly considered a punishment from God. And according to the tradition of the Church, the parents of the Blessed Virgin, Saints Anne and Joachim, were far advanced in years and had not had any children. And tradition tells us that having been uh, reproached in the temple for his sterility, St. Joachim went out off by himself in the wilderness just to pray. And uh, at that time, St. Anne earnestly begged God to grant them uh, a child. She said if you would give them a baby, they would dedicate the child to his service. <laughs> Little did they know that that uh, baby would be the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, God did answer their prayers and um, granted them a daughter who they named Miriam. Uh, Mary was born in Nazareth in the same house where the angel Gabriel came to announce uh, that she was to be the mother of the Messiah. And today in Nazareth, the Basilica of the Annunciation stands on the spot where that house once stood. Uh, the Nativity of Mary is unique in one way. It's one of only three of the uh, of birthdays that are celebrated in the liturgical calendar. Uh, and this is by virtue of Mary being one of only three people, uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve, who were born without original sin. Three, you say? Yes, three. We'll talk about it here. Uh, our Lord Jesus, of course, that's number one. Uh, he's God-made man. He's clearly without sin. Uh, Mary, who is the Immaculate Conception, which is to say she was miraculously preserved from all stain of original sin from the moment of her conception. And three, drumroll please, can you guess who it is? St. John the Baptist. Yeah, now, this is not a dogma of the Church, and St. John the Baptist was not immaculately conceived. That's, that's specific to the Blessed Virgin. Um, but there's a long-standing tradition that although uh, the Baptist was conceived in original sin like everybody else, the angel Gabriel prophesied, if you recall, to his father, Zechariah, and this is Luke 1.15, even when he is still in his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what we call the state of grace. And the presence of original sin is incompatible with sanctifying grace. Hence the tradition that St. John the Baptist 
<clears throat> was filled with the Holy Spirit and freed from original sin at the time of the visitation. Right Later in, in Luke 1, you remember um, in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the, the baby leapt in her womb. That's baby John the Baptist. So even though he was conceived <clears throat> in original sin, the tradition tells us that he was born free of its stain. The old Catholic encyclopedia says this is in keeping with his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. And our, our Lord says in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 11, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, no one has been greater than John the Baptist. And John's greatness primarily consists of his being chosen to announce the coming of the kingdom of God, an office for which he was prepared even before his birth. So three, three nativities in uh, the liturgical calendar. You know, virtually all of the other saints are honored on the day of their death, you know, when they entered into eternity. And in some cases, for uh, some bishops, um, have their feast day on the day of their Episcopal consecration, when they became a bishop. But, uh, but most are honored on the day that they left this life. And that's also true of, you know, um, our Lord and Our Lady and, and John the Baptist, that we honor the days they departed this life. So Good Friday and uh, the Assumption and the beheading of John the Baptist, respectively. But only for these three do we also celebrate their birthdays as a part of the liturgical year. Okay, there's a good article at uh, 1 Peter 5, the 1peter5.com website, uh, called Forgotten Customs of Our Lady's Nativity by Matthew Please. And he points out that, amongst other things, once upon a time, uh, Our Lady's Nativity was a holy day of obligation, even in what would become... Uh, the United States, all the way back in 1537, okay, so way back, uh, Pope Paul III reduced the number of holy days uh, of obligation for Native American converts because uh, it was a pastoral concern uh, because of their daunting, you know, physical conditions of their life. You know, they were already kind of fasting enough, he thought. So um, they were dispensed from going to Mass, they were only obliged, I should say, to go on Sundays and some 10 holy days each year, uh, including the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin. So that was one of the 10. Now, in the church at large, there was a lot more than 10 holy days of obligation back in those days, um, the days of precept far more numerous, even when Pope Urban VIII reduced the number of days of obligation uh, by the time he was done, and this is back in 1642, there were still 35 holy days of obligation every year, of which the Nativity of Mary remained uh, on the calendar. And so the Feast of the Nativity of Mary endured as a holy day in the dioceses of the New World, including Quebec up in Canada and present-day Florida and Louisiana, and, uh, and Catholics in the British colonies also kept uh, Our Lady's Nativity as a holy day of obligation, uh, all the way up until Pius VI, and he dispensed a number of, of the holy days, including um, this feast day in March of 1777. And then um, it stayed a holy day for another year in Ireland and then uh, was take, you know, stopped being a day of obligation in 1778. So it's a, a feast of long standing. So we figured that it was, uh, it was you know, universal in the church by the 7th century and was a holy day of obligation you know, for, for many, many centuries. And so... 
you, as you might imagine, uh, there grew up a number of small tea traditions around this feast. You know, in the Middle Ages, um, the birthday of our Blessed Mother on the 8th of September, that was the day that marked the end of summer and the beginning of the harvest season. So that article on 1 Peter 5 quotes a Father Francis Weiser to the effect that, quote, since September the 8th marks the end of summer and the beginning of fall, this day has many uh, Thanksgiving celebrations and customs attached to it. In the old Roman ritual, there is a blessing of the summer harvest and fall planting seeds for this day. The wine growers in France called this feast Our Lady of the Grape Harvest, and the best grapes are brought to the local church to be blessed, and then some bunches are attached to the hands of the statue of Mary. And a festive meal uh, follows, which includes the new grapes, right, part of that day. Up in Austria, uh, in, in the Alps, uh, this was known as Drive Down Day, because that was on that day that the cattle and sheep that were kept um, up on the slopes of the Alps were driven down to their winter quarters in the, in the valleys underneath. So, and as you can imagine, this was quite an undertaking. And, and it became like a big caravan, a big procession where everybody would go, you know, along with the, the sheep and the, and the cows. And, and they'd all dressed in their finery and there was decorations and various festivities. And it was the custom that all the milk that was collected that day and all the leftover food from this, uh, this festival were given to the poor in honor of Our Lady's nativity. So it is, it's entirely appropriate to honor this day with uh, some family traditions of your own. Um, in our house, for example, we I, just the other day uh, went to the grocery store. We'll have grapes on the table today. And uh, last night my wife picked a cake. So we'll have some cake in honor of the, the birthday of Our Lady. Uh, and, you know, I think it's, it's those little things that stay with you. It's those family traditions uh, that kind of follow you through life, you know. My wife and I have six kids, and we still have four at home, uh, but they're older now. You know, the, the youngest two are in high school. The others are, you know, uh, in their 20s. And, um, but we still pray the rosary together every night as a family, just like we did when they were little kids. Our two oldest, you know, are out in the world and married and, and starting their own families. But they're also, you know, they're still practicing Catholics. They, they continue those family traditions in their own home when they come to visit they, they join us and the grandkids, you know, for that family rosary. And it reminded me, uh, Father Lavosik uh, wrote a book some years ago called Mary, My Hope, I think back in the 50s. And uh, he says in there, he says, um, children forget many things when they grow up. They do not forget the manly piety of their father or the gentle devotion of their mother and the love of Jesus and Mary as the support of the home in sorrow and in joy. And I certainly hope that's true of all of us and all Catholic parents who try and give the best example uh, that they can. A final word, uh, the, the prophets foretold the coming of the Savior and the manner uh, in which the redemption of the world would take place. They also foresaw the coming of Mary. Um, Balaam refers to as the star that shall arise from Jacob, the prophet Isaiah, the virgin shall be with child uh, and give birth to a son. She is the dawn of the Son of Justice. Happy birthday, Mary. Okay, back with lots more uh, No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after this.
Welcome back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for VMPR. A little later on in the program, we are going to continue our examination of the, our kind of overview of the new Mass in light of Redemptionis Sacramentum, the Magna Carta of uh, eliminating liturgical abuse from the new order of the Mass. But uh, first, we began this week in the traditional calendar with the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. And the gospel for that Sunday is Luke 7, 11 through 16, Jesus raises the son of the widow of Nain. Now in this gospel, God manifests himself once again as he did in the days of the prophets uh, Elijah and Elisha. And St. Luke recounts to us how Jesus traveled to Nain and met a funeral procession leaving the village. A widow's only son was dead, leaving her virtually helpless, but Jesus brought the young man back to life. And this miracle, which is recorded only in Luke, reveals our Lord's divine power, his compassion for people's needs, and more. So, without any further ado, the continuation of the Holy Gospel, according to St. Luke. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, accompanied by his disciples and a large crowd. As he drew near the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his widowed mother. A large group of people from the town accompanied her. When the Lord saw her, he was filled with compassion, and he said to her, Do not weep. After this, he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers halted. Then he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all who were present, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this miracle took place outside a village um, about six miles southwest of Nazareth. Luke is the only evangelist who reports this incident, and the village of Nain is not otherwise mentioned anywhere in the Bible. So the first thing that we can see from this passage is that honoring the dead was important in Jewish tradition. Uh, A funeral procession would see the family and friends of the dead person walking, uh, following the body, which would be wrapped in cloth and laid on a uh, kind of, you know, a beer, which is kind of a stretcher. And in addition, that funeral procession would include musicians and hired mourners, as well as the friends and relatives. And you can read about that in Matthew 9, 23 and Mark 538. So the uh, musicians would play a dirge and the mourners would, you know, cry loudly and and lament in in order to draw attention to the proceedings. And as they made their way through town, you know, the people on the wayside were expected to join in the procession. And then the family's mourning would continue maybe 30 days. But the mother of the dead man in this case uh, was in an even sadder situation because in the Jewish culture of this day, this woman's future was was bleak, to say the least. She's identified in the text as a widow, which means her husband was already dead. And with the death of her only son, she would have lost her last means of support. The gospel calls her, her son a man. So it is probable that she was beyond the age of childbearing and therefore not likely to remarry, which means that when that funeral was over and the crowds of mourners had gone home, She would be left in her grief, penniless, alone, easy prey for swindlers, and unless some relative came to her aid and took her in, 
her livelihood would have been uh, depended upon the charity of others in Israel. Uh, you can uh, read about that in Deuteronomy 26, verse 12. She, in other words, she would have been reduced to begging for food. Now, as Luke emphasizes so often in this gospel, it's, this is just the kind of person that Jesus came to help. And he did, of course, demonstrating the divine power that he has to bring hope out of the worst tragedies. Also, I think it's significant today on the Feast of the Nativity of Mary to think about our Lord on the cross, that he took the time to give, you know, to, to say to John, right, because here he's dying, okay, and, and here his mother is going to be, she's a widow. And so she, he turns to John and says, behold your mother. And he says to the Blessed Virgin, behold your son. And of course, it transcends uh, that moment of, of John, you know, agreeing to take responsibility for the Blessed Virgin to, you know, th- that, that Jesus gave as his parting gift uh, to the Blessed Virgin. He gave us to her, you know, that, that she would be our mother and that we would be her children. Um, anyway, the gospel says that, that Jesus comes forward and he says he came forward and he touched the beer. That's uh, verse 14. Uh, this would have been a shocking action at the time. Because according to Mosaic law, contact with a dead person would render an Israelite ritually unclean for an entire week. Right? You read about that in the uh, book of Numbers uh, 19, verses 11 through 19. But Jesus turns the expected outcome of this gesture on its head when he commands, young man, I say to you, arise. So by bringing that dead man back to life again, Jesus eliminated the very cause of the legal defilement and consequently, it's, you know, unwelcome effects as well. Uh, you know, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The guy comes back to life. That's, <laughs> that's what happens when that contact is made. Uh, in verse 16, the gospel says that the people who witnessed the miracle were seized with fear and glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Now, that Jesus was a powerful prophet, uh, um, was a popular conception of him at the time. You know, uh, people thought of him as a prophet, not only because he proclaimed God's message, like the Old Testament prophets did, but because he brought people back from the dead, you know. Uh, This episode is one of three times in the New Testament that, um, you know, the evangelists record Jesus raising someone from the dead. Uh, He also raised the daughter of Jairus, and he raised his friend Lazarus, um, the brother of Martha and Mary. But I think this miracle was perhaps especially striking uh, to the people outside the city of Nain because it specifically recalls uh, the miracles of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. In, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. And Luke's words, he gave him to his mother, are identical to what it says you know, in 1 Kings. Uh, also in um, 2 Kings 4, 18 and Uh, And following, the prophet Elisha restores to life the son of a Shunammite woman, right? So this miracle is very much in keeping with that prophetic tradition. And the gospel also illustrates um, and foreshadows, really, the work of salvation. St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 1, that we are all spiritually dead in sin, like that widow's son was physically dead. And being dead, therefore, human beings can do nothing uh, to help themselves. They couldn't even ask for help. But God had compassion on mankind and sent uh, Jesus, his only son, to raise us to life with him, as Paul goes on to say in, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. 
But God is rich in his mercy, and because he had such great love for us, he brought us to life with Christ when we were already dead through sin. It is by grace that you have been saved. So this dead man didn't earn his second chance at life any more than you know we earn our new life in Christ. On the cross, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. But because of the graces won by his sacrifice on the cross, we can now rise with him in baptism, cleansed of original sin and our personal sins as well. And there's nothing that you can do to earn that free gift of grace. You can only accept it with thanks and use that gift of new life uh, you know, to, to praise God and to do his will, to know, love, and serve him. You know, as an adult convert, I think I really felt the enormity uh, of this gift, you know, at my baptism, because I was baptized, uh, you know, I was 36 years old. So even though I would uh, very soon betray that gift by, by my own sin, fortunately, uh, God's mercy was and is still available through the sacrament of penance, which brings us to another mystical uh, interpretation of this gospel passage, this time from St. Ambrose. For him, the widow represents Mother Church, weeping for her children who have committed mortal sins uh, after baptism and have fallen from the state of grace and are therefore carried beyond the safety of her gates. But, he says, the multitudes looking on, so that's not just fellow Christians, but also the angels and saints in heaven, will praise the Lord when sinners rise again from death through the sacrament of penance and are restored to their mother. Uh, and this is in keeping with Luke fifteen seven, where he says there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Okay, so that was uh, this week's Sunday Gospel. And moving on now, um, back to um, what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And last week, uh, we devoted a segment or two to certain aspects of... Uh, uh, Pope Francis' Moda Proprio Traditionis Custodes and how it relates to the traditional Mass, I mean the, the uh, Novus Ordo Mass. You know, in his letter to the bishops of the world that accompanied Traditionis Custodes, Pope Re, uh, Francis reveals the motive behind his Moda Proprio. He said, the bishops are to, quote, provide for the good of those who are rooted in the traditional Latin Mass, but who, quote, need to return in due time to the Roman rite promulgated by Saints Paul VI and John Paul II. So his stated purpose for that latest mort proprio, for our own good, of course, is to first restrict and eventually eliminate the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass altogether. Now, we'll put that aside for now. Because he also said, at the same time, I am saddened by abuses in the celebration of the liturgy on all sides. In common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that, and now he's quoting Benedict XVI's own letter to the bishops that accompanied Samorum Pontificum, he says, In many places the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for, or even a requirement of, creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions. Okay, so take him at his word. Pope Francis says he is saddened by and, in fact, deplores liturgical abuse of the Novus Ordo Mise. Then, after advising the bishops how to proceed in restricting the traditional Latin Mass, and with an eye to its eventual elimination, again, another subject for another time, he says, 
At the same time, I ask you, that's the Pope asking the bishops, to be vigilant uh, in assuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II, without the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses. Seminarians and new priests should be formed in the faithful observance of the prescriptions of the Missal and liturgical books in which is reflected the liturgical reform willed by Vatican Council II. Now, with this in mind, I brought up two weeks ago the Magna Carta of uh, eliminating liturgical abuse in the new Mass, Redemptionis Sacramentum, which states, and I quote, liturgical abuses are harmful and must cease and abuses contribute to the obscuring of the Catholic faith and doctrine. Also, abuses are often based in ignorance in that they involve a rejection of those elements whose deeper meaning is not understood. And so we're going to talk about, uh, or continue talking about the new Mass in light of what else this document says when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholics right after this. Stay with us. Okay, returning to our uh, examination, our overview of the uh, Novus Ordo Mass in light of Redemptionis Sacramentum, um, I wanted to mention one other thing that uh, the document says, uh, according to Redemptionis Sacramentum, the Church has received her liturgy, quote, from apostolic and unbroken tradition, which it is the Church's task to transmit faithfully and carefully to future generations. So, Redemptionis Sacramentum assumes what Benedict XVI would call the hermeneutic of continuity. And that same understanding was invoked by uh, St. Paul VI back when uh, he first was promulgating the Novus Ordo. He said, Liturgy is like a strong tree whose beauty is derived from the continuous renewal of its leaves, but whose strength comes from the old trunk with solid roots in the ground. Hence, his assertion that the fundamental outline of the Mass is still the traditional one, not only theologically, but also spiritually. Now, last week we took a look at the introductory rites of the new Mass, the greeting, the penitential rite, the Kyrie, the Gloria, and the collect, or opening prayer. Now, the only thing I didn't get into was the entrance antiphon. And this is found in the Missal and is sung by the cantor or scola or the choir, or if it's not sung, it's recited by a reader or the congregation or simply recited by the celebrant. Uh, which brings up the topic of liturgical music. You know, um, <clears throat> most Sunday Masses with a choir default to what uh, liturgical musicians refer to as the four hymn sandwich. And that consists of the processional or entrance hymn, also known as the gathering song, uh, the offertory, the communion hymn, and the recessional hymn, or in light of the term gathering song, I guess you would call that the scattering song. Uh, but the general instruction of the Roman Missal has this to say. The general instruction of the Roman Missal, by the way, just quickly, is the official book on how to celebrate the Novus Ordo Mise, right? The, the New Order of the Mass has these specific rules that are set down in this book, and the general instruction is at the front of every uh, altar missal. 
So it says, um, great importance should therefore be attached to the use of singing in the celebration of the Mass. Although it is not always necessary to sing all the texts that are in principle meant to be sung, for example, in weekday Masses, but every care should be taken that singing by the ministers and the people not be absent in celebrations that occur on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. However, in the choosing of the parts actually to be sung, preference is to be given to those that are of greater importance, and especially to those which are to be sung by the priest or the deacon or a reader with the people replying, or by the priest and people together. So the Kyrie, the Gloria, the responsorial psalm, the gospel acclamation, the Sanctus, Agnus Dei, etc., um, the main place should be given, and this is the general, this is not going back to Vatican II, this is the, the current instruction for celebrating the new order of the Mass. Main place should be given, all things being equal to Gregorian chant, as being proper to the Roman liturgy. Unlike other kinds of sacred music, or rather other kinds of sacred music, in particular polyphony, are in no way excluded, provided that they correspond to the spirit of the liturgical action, and that they foster the participation of all the faithful. See, it's that <clears throat> last line about the participation of the faithful, I think, that leads most parishes to default to the, to the, the for him sandwich and these, you know, kind of mediocre melodies that are served up by publishers of the Missalette and the Music Issue. But that is not what the general instruction of the Roman Missal envisions. I quote, Since the faithful from different countries come together ever more frequently certainly the case here in Southern California, it is desirable that they know how to sing together at least some parts of the ordinary of the Mass uh, in Latin, especially the profession of faith in the Lord's Prayer according to the simpler settings. Pardon me, I got a little frog in my throat. So, the faithful should be able to sing the parts of the ordinary in Latin. Now, regarding music for the introductory rite, the general instruction for the Roman Missal, U.S. edition, has this to say. In the dioceses of the United States of America, there are four options for the entrance chant. Number one, the antiphon from the Missal, or the antiphon with its psalm from the Graduale Romanum, as set to music there or in another musical setting. Now, the antiphon, or the antiphon and psalm from the Graduale Romanum. What's that? The Roman Gradual is the official liturgical book containing all the chants for the Mass. The Gradual is not limited to the texts that are provided in the Missal, but, but offers a wider choice of musical possibilities. So that's option one. Option two, the antiphon and psalm of the Graduale Simplex for the liturgical time. Okay, what's that? Well, as the name implies, it is the simple Gradual. Uh, a book of Latin Gregorian chant published by the Vatican back in 1967 um, after the Second Vatican Council and then revised in 1975. It's similar to the Roman Gradual, but uh, like I said, as the name implies, the settings are simpler uh, for the express purpose of adapting Gregorian chant to parish use and to churches that don't have an experienced choir. The simple gradual is intended to introduce Gregorian chant in such a way that the people can learn to participate in the chant. And, you know, go to YouTube and search Graduale Simplex, and you'll, you know, for, and you can see some examples, and you'll wonder why they don't do it at your parish. All right, the third option is a chant from another collection of psalms and antiphons 
uh, approved by the Conference of Bishops or the Diocesan Bishop, including psalms arranged in responsorial or metrical forms, in other words, so back and forth between the cantor and choir, and or choir rather, and the people. And number four, <clears throat> pardon me, another liturgical chant that is suited to the sacred action, the day or the time of year, similarly approved by the conference or the diocesan bishop. Similar guidelines govern the uh, communion antiphon and the rest of the chants in the Mass. You will notice, okay, conspicuous by its absence, <laughs> there is precisely no mention of the gathering song or any of the hackneyed folk pop songs that you find in the music issue from Oregon Catholic Press. I remember back in 2011, so one year after the new corrected translation, English translation came out, um, they were kind of hopeful that maybe people would start paying attention to this. There was an article published in Zenit about the Gradually Romanum uh, by a professor of liturgy from the Pontifical uh, Athenium Regina Apostolorum University in Rome. It's a mouthful. Who said, I am very happy to see musicians give priority to the official liturgical texts rather than go the easy way of introducing tunes from other sources. In this way, the assembly can aspire to sing the Mass. Uh, let me say that again. In this way, the assembly can aspire to sing the Mass and not just sing at Mass. Now, unfortunately, like the corrected translation, unlike the corrected translation, rather, the, the universal use of the gradual is, is you know, hardly uh, typical. The question is, uh, do they really want active participation in the Mass or not? Now, the tunes that you're singing at your church um, are no doubt from sources that are approved by the, the local bishop. Pardon me. And as such, you know, they don't constitute a liturgical abuse per se. But it clearly doesn't reflect the mind of the church, which could not be clearer. Right? So it just needed to be said. Uh, moving on to our overview of the outline of the new Mass. Next up is the Liturgy of the Word. Now, that includes the readings from the Old and New Testaments on uh, Sundays and Holy Days, and the Gospels, as well as the Responsorial Psalm and the Gospel Acclamation. This is followed by the priest's homily, the profession of faith, which the, the creed, and the general intercessions, also known as the prayer of the faithful. Now, speaking of the readings at Mass, in January of this year, Pope Francis issued yet another motu proprio, changing canon law to allow women to be installed as lectors and acolytes. Now, it, it's funny, I will bet any money that uh, they have had women lectors at your church for decades, right? <laughs> I'm sure they've been using altar girls for years and maybe even have a female sacristan. But what people were apparently unaware of, because this caused something of a flapdoodle a few months ago, is that uh, uh, the new mass provides an option allowing lay men to read the readings, but they were meant to be installed in this ministry, See, once upon a time, lector was one of the uh, minor orders of the priesthood. Uh, and, and people forget, I think, when they, when they um, reformed the Mass, they changed all the other sacraments as well. So once upon a time, the, the priest would be uh, go through the minor ordinations, porter, um, porter, lector, exorcist, acolyte, and then subdeacon, deacon, and priest. And then, of course, some would go on to bishop or cardinal. Um, but when those minor orders were suppressed by uh, Paul VI, 
He said, well, we should, you know, we can let lay people, they, they can have an option to do them, but they need to be trained and installed and it's a, and it's a ministry and it's for men. Now, um, the new order of the mass allowed for, uh, that, but you know, I mean, obviously for decades, the option for lay readers has been exercised without regard to having installed lectors. And it has been open to women. I mean, to the point that they, that they dominate. I mean, many churches haven't had a male lector in as long as anybody can remember. But what makes the Pope's motu proprio news is that, you know, I mean, after years of doing it anyway, they're finally going to allow women to be officially installed as lectors. And point, Pope Francis actually points to, points to, the, to the abuse as the justification for the change. Um, he says, a consolidated practice in the Latin Church has confirmed, in fact, that such lay ministries being based on the sacrament of baptism can be entrusted to all the faithful who are suitable whether male or female. So the new document changes the wording of Canon 230, paragraph 1, which used to say, lay men who, uh, lay men, two words, who possess the age and qualifications established by decree of the Conference of Bishops can be admitted on a stable basis through the prescribed liturgical right to the ministries of lector and acolyte. The updated canon will say, laity who possess, etc., etc. He said, I... Uh, decision to confer also on women these offices, well, you know, we'll pick it up on the other side because um, it has something to do with other changes that have been made. And I just want to make that point when we come back with lots more No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after these messages. Stay with us. Okay, welcome back. I just uh, wanted to um, finish up on the uh, topic we were talking about right before the break, which is the installation uh, of women in the ministry of lector and acolyte. Uh, obviously, you know, women have been doing the readings and serving at the altar for many, many years now. But, you know, the, the, uh, the intention of the church was to have this be an installed ministry, a stable ministry. Uh, where a man would be ordained, go through preparation and a liturgical rite, and then become ordained as a lector, right? Um, but the, the, the point I wanted to make is that he changed canon law, laymen who possess the age and qualifications established, etc., is now laity who possess age and qualifications established, etc. The Pope went on to say, the decision to confer also on women these offices, which involves stability, public recognition, and a mandate from the bishop will make the participation of all in the work of evangelization more effective in the church. And that's a non-sequitur. What, what this has to do with the work of evangelization is anybody's guess. Um, the more cynical among us would suggest that this is um, just another uh, uh, chipping away at the, at the church's prohibition of you know, women in the priesthood, uh, an, an impossible um, dream. But, uh, but the point I wanted to make is that just like altar girls and communion in the hand and other novelties, the lesson is clear. If you disobey long enough, the church will cave in. Uh, or, or perhaps seen another way, uh, a pope will eventually come along who is as hostile to the tradition as you are. Okay, so that's that. But uh, 
Let's look at the effect of, of decades of uninstalled lectors, shall I? I mean, before I became Catholic, long before I ever uh, came along, uh, virtually any Catholic with a pulse was allowed to be a lector. You know, I mean, hopefully now that the, the ministry is finally open to women, they're going to get all serious about it, start paying attention to the qualifications of those who are allowed to proclaim God's word in the Holy Mass. But, I, you know, you know I, mean, I wouldn't hold my breath. But with all due respect to everyone involved, and, you know, and I mean that, because I know that most people who do the readings at Mass are, they're good people and they have their heart in the right place and they're trying to do something for Christ and his church. And for that, you know, I can only be grateful. But the fact of the matter is that lay lectors, like so many things that are abused in the Mass, are optional in the first place. If there's no lay people qualified to do the readings, and I mean really qualified, the way that the, the that the uh, canon law envisions it, then the priest or deacon can certainly handle it, okay? And is the ordinary minister of, uh, you know, the word to begin with. And another thing, <laughs> now it's pet peeve time. We, uh, obviously, I'm not going to get to half of the stuff that I wanted to do today, so I'll just, I'll just uh, and, and technically this isn't an abuse, but, but it seems to me when the Mass is celebrated in English, the first requirement of a lector should be a command of the language. See, and, and again, I'm sorry because I know people have their heart in the right place, but I, I'm, you know, between you and me, if your accent is so thick that, that I, who am very fluent in English, cannot understand what you're saying, okay, for you to do the readings is an abuse. You know, even if English is your first language, if you do not read well, if you can't pronounce the, the, the biblical uh, names and, and places, it's an abuse. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's hard to excuse because, you know, we live in a digital age. It's a, it's a pretty easy matter to go onto the Internet, just pick up your smartphone and find out how these words are pronounced. And obviously, there are certain allowances that must be made. For, uh, foreign-born priests are, are an excellent example. But the fact is, regarding lay lectors, they need not be used at all. And the same goes, yeah, as long as we're on it, uh, uh, the prayer of the faithful. This is something that, you know, the, the, the lector is, is usually called upon to announce these petitions. <clears throat> and I'll never forget that uh, this guy, this was years ago, and this poor hapless fellow, he's up there reading the petitions. And, uh, you know, he comes along and says, uh, for the upcoming celebration of Ukanumical Sunday, let us pray to the Lord, you know. And uh, like, if you have never even encountered the word ecumenical, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be a lector, okay? I'm just saying. And, um, and there's lots of other common abuses in, this, uh, in, in the liturgy of the world. It, it, word. It's, it's illicit, according to Redemptionis Sacramentum. It is illicit to omit or to substitute the prescribed biblical readings on one's own initiative or to replace them with non-biblical texts. Now, hopefully this is not something that you encounter on any kind of regular basis, but they wouldn't be prohibiting it if people weren't doing it. Uh, the homily must be given only by ordained clergy. The priest gives the homily, you know, or uh, the deacon certainly is ordained to, uh, to give the homily, right? He, he's, he is a minister of the word. But, um, but if you're not ordained, I mean, if you're not a deacon, priest, or bishop, you may not give a homily in a Catholic church, and that extends 
to, and this is right out of Redemption of Sacramento, number 66. The prohibition extends to seminarians, students of theological disciplines, and those who have assumed the function of those known as pastoral assistants. Right? There are places where you know, there, there are uh, parishes that don't have a, a regular priest. And so a lay person has been uh, assigned as an administrator. And uh, you know that, that person, though, doesn't get to give a homily when, when Mass rolls around. Uh, also, the Liturgy of the Word, the last part of it, is the Nicene Creed. So it says here, No creed or profession of faith is to be introduced that is not found in duly approved liturgical books. So in the United States, that means the Nicene Creed, or in some um, certain cases, the Apostles' Creed. I know that uh, some dioceses in Canada use the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so, you know, but, but that's the thing. It has to be one of the approved creeds of the Church. You can't substitute something of your own. And then after the, uh, the Credo is the Liturgy of the Eucharist, which consists of the Offertory, also known as the Preparation of the Gifts, uh, the Eucharistic prayer, which is the enactment and the offering of the sacrifice, and then the communion rite. According to the, uh, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, Christ instituted the Paschal sacrifice at the Last Supper, uh, the Paschal sacrifice and banquet, by which the sacrifice of the cross is continuously made present in the church whenever the priest, representing Christ the Lord, carries out what the Lord himself did and handed over to his disciples to be done in his memory. So this is the, you know, the preparation of the gifts is also known in the, the general instruction as the offertory, right? The, uh, and it says right in the general instruction about how it goes, that the gifts are brought to the altar, um, and, which is the center of the whole liturgy of the Eucharist, which is made ready. They're placed on the corporal, the purificator, the missal, the chalice, right? So you're getting ready for the, um, the uh, uh, consecration for the Eucharistic prayer. And then the offerings are then brought forward, right? The bread and wine. It says here, it's praiseworthy. It is a praiseworthy practice for the bread and wine to be presented by the faithful. And the procession bringing the gifts is accompanied by the offertory chant. Okay, once again, not talking about uh, a a song, but the, you know, the the chant uh, with those kind of same norms as the other we were talking about. Uh, You know, and, and the norm, it even says right here, the norms on the manner of singing are the same as for the entrance chant. Singing may always accompany the rite at the offertory, even when there is no procession with the gifts. And so that's, again, like, like so many things, the, uh, the procession itself is optional. And the general instruction of the Roman Missal gives uh, instructions for the incense at the altar and the gifts and the minister and the faithful. And then you're moving on then to um, the Eucharistic prayer, which is the center and the high point of the Mass. Um, it is the point that that makes Christ present for us in his passion, death, and resurrection. And during the Eucharistic prayer, the whole, uh, the whole congregation joins Christ in acknowledging the works of God and in offering the sacrifice. Now, again, we don't have time to go over that, so we're going to do one more installment of this next week, and we're going to go over the, uh, the rest of the liturgy of the Eucharist and talk about communion. But uh, I just want to summarize a little bit some of the things here that were said in regard to liturgy of the word, that it is forbidden to change the words of the mass, that you uh, omit, it's illicit to omit or substitute any of the readings, especially the biblical readings. 
You can't, you know, you can't take them out willy-nilly or put in a different one or put in one of your own or, or especially put in something that's not a biblical text in the first place. And um, the homily is uh, given, must be given only by ordained clergy, never by a lay person. I remember once, uh, years and years ago, um, being at uh, Mass, and there was a, a local election going on, and one of our uh, candidates was a uh, Catholic, well, Catholic in name only politician, who was given a platform uh, you know, during the, the homily. Now, uh, that was, you know, just remarkably inappropriate. Now, to, to be fair, she didn't preach the homily. You know, he did that. But, but you know, having people come and speak, you know, unless it's, a, unless it's a visiting priest or religious, somebody, you know, like somebody from a religious community or a mission, that's one thing. But to just use it for your own purposes is not, you know, it's not allowed. You can't do that. And most especially, you can't uh, have a layperson preaching the homily. All right, um... Like I say, next week, we're going to talk about the liturgy, the rest of the liturgy of the Eucharist. And that's really where the rubber meets the road in regard to liturgical abuse of the Blessed Sacrament, of the rite of communion also, and uh, the, the use of extraordinary ministers also. We're going to talk about what is and isn't allowed, uh, including um, that very term. Who is a Eucharistic minister and who isn't? And what's the distinction and why does it matter? Going to go over all of that and more. You know, according to Redemptionis Sacramentum, uh, it is the right of the Church's faithful that the liturgy, and in particular the celebration of Holy Mass, should be truly as the Church wishes, according to her stipulations as prescribed in the liturgical books and in the other laws and norms. Likewise, the Catholic people have the right that the sacrifice of the Holy Mass should be celebrated for them in an integral manner, according to the entire doctrine of the Church's magisterium. Right, You have a right to that, and you have a right to lodge a complaint if that's not uh, being done on your behalf at your own parish church. All right? So, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us. We're going to finish this up next week and move on to uh, other things. But I, as always, really appreciate you being with us. I appreciate you listening to this program. Um, I love to see all the downloads, and I appreciate questions and stuff. You can always um, contact me directly if you like. You can uh, send me an email at matt at matthewarnold.org, and I'll be uh, sure to uh, answer it as quickly as I can. In the meantime, <clears throat> uh, keep, uh, keep them cards and letters coming. Uh, don't forget to... Remember us in your prayers. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.